primary care knowledge boost, perinatal mental health. and thank you for joining us for today's discussion on perinatal mental health. We're speaking to Dr Carrie Ladd, who's a perinatal mental health champion based down in Oxfordshire, and Dr Sarah Jones, who's a perinatal psychiatrist in Greater Manchester. Yes, Dr Carrie Ladd is the leader of the Spotlight Programme, which aims to spread perinatal mental health training throughout general practice in the UK. And Dr Sarah Jones is the Greater Manchester lead for perinatal mental health, helping to deliver this in Greater Manchester. Yeah, so today we discussed the Spotlight programme that they're both involved in and its learning points. So covering types of mental illness that can be experienced in the perinatal period and what the challenges are for primary care in helping patients and families who are experiencing these conditions. So we then discuss their tips for addressing these challenges, focusing on some good tips around communication and open questions. We talk about managing medications in pregnancy or preconception, um, including SSRIs. And we also talk about the impact of the pandemic on perinatal mental health. Yeah, the, the speakers are passionate about improving outcomes for families and supporting them throughout pregnancy and early parenthood. Um, and it's a privilege to share this episode with you. And we hope you take a lot away from it for your own practice. Um, so would you both mind introducing yourselves for the listeners and tell us a bit about yourselves? Okay, brilliant. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, good to, to meet you, Sarah and Lisa. Um, thanks for the opportunity to come and uh, talk to you today. My name is Carrie Ladd. I'm a GP down in Oxfordshire. Um, I'm clinical director of uh, our PCN and I'm the founder of the Spotlight Project, which uh, has been running for a few years now and looking forward to sharing some of that with you tonight. Hi, I'm Sarah Jones. I'm a consultant perinatal psychiatrist in Manchester and um, normally work on the mother and baby unit in Manchester based at Withinshaw Hospital. And I'm also the trust lead for Greater Manchester Mental Health Foundation Trust for perinatal services across the mother and baby unit and the perinatal community mental health teams. Wonderful. So, yeah, thank you both so much for coming on and chatting to us. Um, can you set the scene for us, first of all? So we're talking today about perinatal mental health and mental illness. What is it and why is it important? Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start, start, Sarah. I've been teaching in this area for quite a few years now. And when I mentioned to my colleagues that I was talking about perinatal mental health, my colleague's response was, postnatal depression isn't that the health physicist's job <laughs> and for quite a few years I actually used that as my opening slide because I think it really sums up to big misconceptions about what perinatal mental health is and um, actually postnatal depression is a really important condition as I'm sure we're going to talk about but there's also lots more that can happen to a lady's mental health when she goes through the journey of having a baby and, and the first year postnatal and that's what we're really talking about with the phrase perinatal it's conception to the first birthday um, and uh, it's such a crucial uh, time of that woman's life not only for her but also for her child and uh, and hopefully by the end of tonight you'll you'll understand your audience will understand better why it's so important that we get it right yeah just to add on that you know there's lots of different conditions that we consider to be part of perinatal mental health sort of spectrum and these can be conditions that first present in the perinatal period or they can be pre-existing conditions that deteriorate when a woman is pregnant or in the postpartum. Um, they're incredibly common. Um, up to maybe 20 to 25% of women will experience some kind of maternal mental health difficulty. And what we now know from kind of more recent research is that paternal mental health problems are also incredibly common. So these are issues that can affect the whole family um, mm. and, and can have really really challenging kind of consequences through that really critical time um, I think importantly to say that whilst these conditions are common and the prevalence is high for both mothers and, and co-parents that they are treatable and that's what's really important is that early identification and recognition can so can save lives but can also reduce the morbidity associated with these conditions for not only the individual but also the family and, and the parent-infant relationships and the infant's mental health as well. So yeah, common important because of the morbidity and mortality associated with them but treatable 
Fantastic. That's a really nice summary, guys. And I think that sets the scene wonderfully for why we've decided to dedicate a podcast episode to this, because um, it is such an important topic. And like you said, that early detection in primary care, really, really important. Um, we thought we'd maybe take a bit of a deeper dive into some of those diagnoses that you've mentioned and um, kind of get a bit of an idea about what might exist and a bit of an explanation in more detail for the primary care setting of what we can look for. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll just shall I run through the um, most sort of common presentations that we see in primary care and talk a little bit about postpartum psychosis as well um, in terms of the kind of symptoms to recognise and, and potentially those women and individuals that might be at risk. So like Carrie's talked about already, um, one of the things that health professionals and public really think about when they think about perinatal mental health problems is postnatal depression. And absolutely, that is something that we see commonly across all health settings. Um, I guess it's important for us to, to, to remember that um, lots of postnatal depression actually starts antenatally. And so that's the time that we need to be thinking about screening women for mood disorders. So depression commonly characterised by low mood, low energy, symptoms of kind of hopelessness and worthlessness, problems with changes in sleep pattern and appetite, which are sometimes can be shadowed by the pregnancy or postnatal period. Uh, so it can be a bit more difficult in helping you work out whether a woman is depressed or not. Um, and then kind of more severe um, symptoms of severe hopelessness, feeling life's not worth living, and then thoughts of um, self-harm and suicidal thoughts as well can be all um, within the assessment for um, depression in the perinatal period. In terms of kind of the red flags to look out for, these are classified as kind of an altered or change in the mental state of an individual who's in the perinatal period. Um, with new thoughts of kind of guilt or incompetence as a mother or an estranged relationship with the baby and then um, new or violent thoughts of self-harm or suicide. And so I think those are really important to, to remember in, in different health settings that if you're coming across individuals with those particular red flags, then that should alert you to a, a deeper kind of assessment and potentials of escalation or signposting to more specialist services. About 20% um, of all women will experience a depressive episode. Um, it's probably actually quite a high estimate, um, probably 15%, probably a bit, a bit more sort of accurate within the confines of kind of mild to moderate to severe depressive episodes. Um, and then anxiety disorders, also incredibly common, about 15% of women will experience an anxiety disorder, which can include um, PTSD, OCD, generalised anxiety disorder um, and all of these conditions can present for the first time in a perinatal period or can be pre-existing conditions that deteriorate and we recognise that childbirth can be a trigger for PTSD and kind of being reactivated as well so it's important to look out for. Um, and then in terms of the other conditions that we come across we think about women who've got a history of bipolar affective disorder or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder who might be at risk of having a relapse um, and potentially being at risk of having a postpartum psychotic episode as well which is a syndrome characterized by a number of different symptoms including a kind of labile mood delusional beliefs um, abnormal perceptions and hallucinations and I think what's important to say about postpartum psychosis is it can come on very, very quickly with 90% presenting within the first week postpartum. And early identification is absolutely key here. This is a psychiatric emergency that requires hospital admission. And so once you've considered someone having a diagnosis of postpartum psychosis, need to be thinking about how to um, ensure that she's going to get the right specialist assessment and into preferably her mother and baby unit it as soon as possible so that she can be treated with her baby but those are the kinds of, um, of diagnoses that we see depression and anxiety much more common than postpartum psychosis but something that's important to look out for because of the unpredictability that's associated with it. 
So what Sarah was saying just made me reflect on on my role as a GP. And actually, I've been a GP for 10 or 11 years now. And um, I always remember when, when we were doing a lot more antenatal care than we are now, because of various reasons, the pandemic included, we were checking blood pressure, checking urine for protein. But actually, how often were we asking about mental health? And actually, the stats that Sarah's given, by far the most likely thing to happen to a lady medically as she goes through pregnancy is to have a mental health problem, much more common than developing something like preeclampsia or um, or a blood clot. But actually, these are the things that traditionally we've been looking for. So it actually needs a real change of mindset from all health professionals, um, GPs included, to actually consider every contact they have with that woman, even if they're presenting for something else, to actually ask about their mental health so that we do pick up opportunistically where we can. Because as we'll perhaps talk about later, women often feel limited in their disclosure of their symptoms for lots and lots of reasons. But if GPs aren't thinking about it, they won't be asking about it. And then we absolutely won't be picking it up. Yeah. Is it 20 to 25% you said in the perinatal period that women suffer with different mental illnesses? Is that right? 20% is kind of what's quoted. Some recent evidence has suggested it potentially is a little bit higher, up to kind of 23 to 25%. And the, the data around paternal mental health is about 10% um, of, of fathers are thought to experience a, a paternal mental health difficulty. And I think what's interesting for us to remind ourselves of is that um, the biggest predictor of paternal mental health problems is maternal mental health problems. And so these can, can cluster within families. And you think about trying to establish parent-infant relationships within the context of having two parents with mental health difficulties. So, um, you know, it's sort of really interesting to, 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 to understand a bit more about how these um, how mental health conditions can affect both, both parents, really, um, and therefore how important it is to pick them up. Yeah, I think I think that's a real challenge for for GP Sarah because we have universal contact with women thanks to the contract change that that, that was introduced last year. Actually, all GPs should be giving a, a six to eight week postnatal check. But actually, I rarely remember a postnatal check, even pre pandemic, where a partner came with that woman. Um, and uh, how we can sensitively ask the women we see. How, how's the support from your partner? How do you think they're finding things? And actually really making sure that we're, we're, we're offering, reaching out to those partners that need that support is a real challenge, I think. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. No, I think it's something that, you know, I think we're struggling with in secondary care as well. And it's, it's part of our longer term plan ambitions to carry out um, partner assessments and, and link um, partners and, and co-parents in with organisations such as Proud to be Parents and Dad Matters and the Dad Pad um, and these interventions mm. that are hopefully trying to engage um, and the co-parent into being able to come forward and talk about how the perinatal period is affecting their own mental health. But yeah, absolutely. It's a huge challenge. Yeah, I think what I've found really interesting over the last few years is actually learning about some of the, the epigenetics effects, which kind of takes me, me back to medical student days, um, a bit hazy now. But but the idea that actually there's so much development of the um, baby's brain in utero and in that first year or two, um, and actually the, the relationships with the key parents, the key caregivers, um, is actually really crucial in some of that child's development. And so actually, if you have a mum that's poorly and their partner is also poorly, actually there's really significant impact um, potentially on on that child and some of their um, neurodevelopmental stuff. I don't know, Sarah, if you've got any thoughts on that, but there's increasing evidence, I think, isn't there now about the importance of the, both, both caregivers, not just the, the woman herself? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, a shocking statistic that 80% of, a, of an individual brain is completely developed by the time they're two years old, which is just absolutely extraordinary. And so the time from, pre from, sorry, from conception to two years is called the critical 1001 days. Um, and it's thought that interventions at that in those stages um, can really change the life course for that individual. And so if we turn that on its head in terms of putting sort of positive spin on it, actually being able to identify these conditions early and wrap this family, you know, wrap the family in the right care package at the right time and in the right place, then you've got a very good chance of changing the life course of an individual and potentially for generations to come. And that's the whole movement for perinatal mental health is um, that it's not just about the here and now, it's also about, you know, the, the, the well-being, welfare um, of, of, of the future generations, which, you know, is incredibly um, exciting to work in a field that's got those kind of statistics behind it. 
Yeah, I know such far-reaching consequences. It's yeah, it's a really great message to be fair um, to put out there. Um, and we, we you mentioned um, Carrie earlier uh, in your introduction about the Spotlight Project. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about what that is? So of course, yeah, thank you. Uh, so the Spotlight Project uh, started about five years ago, and its inception was really um, through myself working with Dr. Judy Shakespeare, who's a retired uh, GP in Oxford, who's done lifelong work in this area in lots of platforms. Um, but we, I was her clinical fellow for a year uh, with the Royal College of General Practitioners, and we developed what we thought were pretty useful educational tools. So we developed a nice guide summary with four pages, which took it down from about 100, which was really practical and very GP focused. Um, We uh, developed the uh, uh, RCGP perinatal mental health toolkit uh, together with Dr. Louise Santhenham, who's a GP in London, um, which is a collection that you can access um, for free. You don't need to be a college member. um, And and perhaps we can share the link somehow to your audience after this. But it's a collection of over 400 resources to support um, Um, uh, health professionals supporting uh, women and their partners who are having mental health problems in this perinatal time. Um, And really, we were going out, both of us, giving lectures, a couple of hundred GPs, asking, has anyone heard of this, (laughs) this work we've been doing? And very rarely did we get anyone putting their hand up. So we realized there's a real challenge between actually getting some really good educational, useful stuff out to frontline GPs. Um, uh, and so we came up with the idea of the Spotlight Project, which is based around champions cascading uh, training and extra extra um, info to their colleagues in their, in their patch. And the first year um, we worked in Wessex and uh, trained up four GPs, experienced GPs, who then went out and gave training sessions to their their peers across the patch and Wessex is a really large region but we managed to to reach um, at least one person from 50% of those practices in various different teaching sessions and I think that was uh, a really good number but what it did is it showed the model worked and actually several other areas uh, contacted me afterwards to say we'd like to take it to our area and actually Greater Manchester was the most recent area which I think was year four um, and to date I've trained over um, 75 champions I think 78 was the last count and all of those champions have been uh, commissioned by their local clinical network working with their perinatal mental health teams to go and deliver uh, training sessions in various forms. We've had webinars, we've had large conferences, small tutorials, um, but that each champion was asked to go and deliver a minimum number 15 to 20 for most of us. Um, and that's meant that this, this uh, message, the key messages that Sarah and I've just been talking about have reached a huge number of GPs. After the second year, we've managed to reach over 10,000 health professionals, 90% of those were GPs. And it's been running for another couple of years. Um, health Education Air England are currently evaluating how many more people we've reached with the project. Um, but I must mention that I have uh, worked with a champion to take it to the next area. So it's been this sort of um, self-sustaining model. So a champion who I trained with in the second year, she then went on to become a trainer with me in another patch, uh, Dr. Stephanie DiGiorgio, um, and then Dr. Muna Rahman was another trainer, and most recently Dr. Laura Davies. So it's been a really great model to see champions grow in their in their uh, teaching experience and confidence, and then to actually go and deliver their messages to, to their peers. Um, and there's big plans to take it further afield, but I probably can't mention them at the moment, but it's certainly still growing, and, and that's fantastic. And, and, and a big shout out to anyone that supported it along the way that might be listening. Amazing. It does look absolutely fantastic. So we're we're the fourth fourth year of it that is coming up to Greater Manchester. Very, very happy it's here. Yeah, yeah. It's a great model, Cascade Training. It makes a lot of sense to actually, yeah, yeah really high level. I think so. And I think the kind of people that put themselves forward for it are all people with bright ideas. And actually, one of the reasons it's been so successful is because people have used their initiative, they've used their networks. We had one of our first champions in Wessex who was a safeguarding lead. And so she managed to piggyback onto the safeguarding mm. training and, and, and very quickly managed to reach a huge number of GPs with some of the, 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 the messages, which is fantastic. And it's also been a springboard for some of the champions to go and do some other brilliant work. One champion I know became a um, 
governor of the local women's and um, women and child uh, sort of charity in their area. Some others have taken CCG roles, working with commissioners. So it's really been um, a real platform for people to actually get involved in the work and crucially start working with their local um, support partners. So get to know their, their midwifery support team, their um, perinatal teams, and really build those links that are so crucial. As um, Sarah was saying, this is a this is a whole team project, really. It's uh, it's actually all professionals that are involved in supporting women during this time that need to be on the same page and working in the same direction. And I think the spotlight is just a small part of actually a bigger thing that's happening, which is really exciting, as Sarah says. Amazing. And so in terms of the key messages from the Spotlight programme, uh, using this platform as well, um, what, what are the types of messages that are, are really important to share today in terms of some of the most important learning points that we can all use? Yeah. So I think if we sort of divide that up into preconception, so one of the most useful things I think we can do is actually give women the information before they fall pregnant. Um, it's often said GPs are well placed to do this, GPs are well placed to do that. But actually, when I see a patient, I do have usually a lifelong record of their medical notes in front of me. And I can actually see that they might have had an eating disorder when they were a teenager, or that they might have had some substance abuse issues a few years ago. So we do have that kind of context of information information. And for some of us that are still lucky enough to see patients fairly regularly and actually, you know, work in the same place, we may know the context in which they live their life. And actually that, that can be super helpful in supporting them. Um, one sort of practical suggestion I have is a bit like when the, I think it was the quaff epilepsy changes came in a few years ago, we started to think preconception. If I see a lady who's perhaps got a diagnosis of bipolar, might be taking medication, I can actually drop into her in the annual medication review, something along the lines of, you may not be thinking about starting a family at the moment, but when you do, it'd be great if you could come and have a chat with me before and I can link you up with our perinatal team who would be able to give you some advice. Please, please don't stop your medication uh, suddenly, but, but come and talk to us if you find yourself pregnant unexpectedly. And such a simple message actually can make a massive difference, as I'm sure Sarah will say, that this is a really high risk group. And often they do stop medication when they find out they're pregnant. And if they don't have that support or that information, it can really have quite significant consequences. Sarah, I don't know if you want to add anything at that point. No, I think preconception is incredibly uh, important um, to get as many women um, seen before they conceive. We know that that gives us an opportunity not only to talk about the psychiatric medication uh, and the safety of the psychiatric medication in, in pregnancy and breastfeeding, but also an opportunity to talk about risk of relapse, um, maximising support, and also optimising the modifiable risk factors such as alcohol consumption or smoking or family support or thinking about other lifestyle choices that will, you know, give the, the give the best possible obstetric and infant uh, outcomes. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Complete completely agree that's the best time to advise a woman on the uh, kind of risks through a perinatal period before she's conceived and we've got preconception and um, counselling uh, services in perinatal mm. mental health services um, that women can be referred for um, and seen within kind of six to eight weeks um, so uh, yeah preconception counselling um, services are, are run across the country so should be linking in with the local service to see how to get a preconception counselling appointment for patients who are wanting it, thinking about getting pregnant on medication, have a diagnosis, had a previous diagnosis and want to find out more and what support might be available yeah. when they do get pregnant. Is that for high risk patients, so patients with bipolar or schizophrenia or is that for... Yeah, it, it is for high-risk patients, but it's also for patients who are taking psychotropic medication or psychiatric medications that they might want to know, you know, for example, how safe is this SSRI I'm taking? How safe is Prozac, for example? How safe is whatever medication they're on in, in a potential pregnancy? And, and what we know is that um, there are very high risk of relapse when patients stop medication suddenly. And there's, you know, very few medications that are kind of completely contraindicated in pregnancy but we also know that the major organs of a, of a fetus develop within the first kind of six to eight weeks and so if you think about when women come to find that they're pregnant some of them are often at the kind of eight week mark already so I guess there's a couple of things there it's 
preconception is for um, for anybody that's got a mental health condition or wants to find out more um, for women who are on medication and want to know what the risks are and and and, and understand what specialist services are available um, and the time to do it is like like Carrie said before they get pregnant before those organs have started to develop um, and to give them the best chance of being able to change all the lifestyle factors that might impact on a pregnancy or neonatal outcomes. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Sarah. So, so to follow up on the other sort of key points that I'd like to share from the spotlight, in terms of actually seeing ladies uh, antenatally, I mentioned that we, we don't see so much of the routine antenatal care, but it's quite common that we'd see somebody for a urine infection or, or maybe they're bringing their toddlers in for the third time with a, a, you know, a bit of an upper respiratory thing that's not too significant, but actually the real underlying issue is their anxiety. So, so actually, I would really encourage uh, colleagues to think about their um, mental health as much as their physical health and actually even if they come for something apparently unrelated, just check in and ask them. And actually to try and change the conversation and the expectation, because actually I find that so many women who who have problems that present postnatally, they struggle even more because they'd expected it to be perfect, and, and particularly if it's their first pregnancy. So it is difficult for clinicians when we're pressed for time and people come to us and they're, they're, they're really happy and very positive, looking forward to things, to actually broach the subject of well actually it doesn't always work out like that do you know what you would do if you if you found yourself a bit low after you had the baby do you have the support in place do you know you can come and talk to us so to try and drop those things into conversation is uh, an extra skill but you know that's what GPs do well so so definitely in the in the later stage of pregnancy I would definitely encourage colleagues to, to, to mention that and the earlier stages of pregnancy again you may end up seeing somebody phoning for the first time with that positive pregnancy test just make sure you ask if there's any history of um, mental health problems with female members of the family is really important and have they uh, any concerns about what's happened to them in the past in terms of postnatally there's some really key messages that we teach in the spotlight and they're really simple and I have to thank uh, Judy who I mentioned earlier and Stephanie because um, I've uh, I've certainly adapted from their their work and the first is that postnatally um, if you go through the, the checklists. If you go through the Edinburgh postnatal score, you're not going to really find out what's going on in that in that woman's mind, what, what's going on in her life. Much, much better, actually, and this is endorsed by um, some of the recommendations, um, is to ask open, non-judgmental questions. And actually, the key question for me is, tell me about the birth. Because actually, you do that to start with. And women, <laughs> we all have a story to tell those of us who go through childbirth. And actually, if you start like that, then there's no judgment and they can tell you exactly what it was like and you can get a very clear idea of whether that was a positive experience or actually whether it was really terrifying and actually you need to be exploring more for, for, for um, signs of PTSD. The second crucial question is to again open non-judgmental how are you finding being a mum? Is it what you expected? And as I say, I've been a GP for over 10 years. I have never had any woman say, yes, it's exactly what I was expecting. <laughs> um, everybody has a different answer. But in asking it that way, you are allowing for women to disclose, actually, it's really tough. I'm having a really difficult time. And... Um, and I would definitely recommend to try those questions because I think you'll get a lot more out of women than you uh, you would otherwise going through some sort of check checklist. I saw when you were talking there about the um, sort of expectations of parenting and, and what it would be like to be a new parent. Um, in the slides, I saw my, one of my favourite quotes about um, comparison being the destroyer of all joy, is it? I think, is that right? Well, yes, comparison is the thief of joy. And actually, that's thief of joy. the thief of joy. We talk about that quite a lot on, on the spotlight, because if you think about um, why women don't disclose that they're having problems, um, there's so many reasons, but fear of judgment, fear of stigma, fear of shame, all those things that, that anyone with a mental health problem often experiences but for some reason because a lot of women put such pressure on themselves to be that perfect mum that insta life that they see of everything being white clean calm quiet under control it's so far from the reality for almost all of us but actually women are putting themselves on this pedestal expecting it to be like that that if it's not it's really really difficult to actually tell anybody um, and I think that also goes back to what we were saying about partners so actually you know if a partner is feeling really rubbish with mental health symptoms the idea that they're not able to support their partner who's actually just had a baby and actually maybe breastfeeding or doing other stuff that that's really difficult and that just kind of compounds their feeling of guilt mm. and shame 
claim and, and, and it makes it even more difficult for disclosure. So, yeah, I absolutely think we need to challenge that society expectation of what being a mum uh, or, or a co-parent is about um, and, and help women realise that it is okay to come forward and say, actually, I'm not having the best time, I'm, I'm struggling, um, because then that allows that conversation um, to open up so that we can explore as professionals more specific signs and symptoms and then actually make a diagnosis if it's there because it's so crucial to just pick up these conditions early to to treat them appropriately and then you really minimize the adverse um, adverse impact of that episode of mental health uh, illness for that woman and the whole family amazing so if we talk more now about medications, as that's always something that we're always keen to get <laughs> to get more advice on. Um, it's a re- really common scenario is um, women coming to us early early on in the pregnancy who are on an SSRI, for example, um, or uh, anti-anxiety medications or antipsychotics, um, much more so for SSRIs. Maybe if we take each one, can you just sort of talk us through the general advice for, for these patients? Yeah. So, so do you want me to start, and then Sarah, perhaps you come in if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I guess there's different scenarios. One is that women come to us and they're already taking stuff and they're terrified. And actually, I, there was some research uh, a few years ago that that showed that women um, in the study felt that taking antidepressants in in pregnancy was actually as dangerous as taking thalidomide. Um, and it really struck me that actually, yes, yeah, some women are very, very fearful about about taking medication in pregnancy, but the actual risks are. Um, small um, and we have to present a proportionate uh, set of information to allow women to make a decision because there are risks to not taking medication. And I think the general principle that I encourage um, colleagues that I teach to follow is actually the lowest effective uh, medication for the shortest possible time. That's quite a simple way of framing it. But uh, I would explore whether women have found uh, certain medications effective before, whether they've had side effects before, consider what stage of pregnancy they are, consider if they want to breastfeed, um, but mostly find out what their wishes are. Because actually, if I have a, a highly anxious lady who is terrified of taking anything, and I persuade her to start taking something to help that anxiety, if she is going to actually spend a lot more time worrying about it, um, and the risks are disproportionate in her mind, it could actually do more damage. So I think we have to really be judged by what, what women want and to give them the information to make that choice. Um, I use the toolkit, I use the Bumps website, as, as um, I'm sure that you, you will have found. And actually, I I fairly often contact my colleagues for advice, whether that's clinical pharmacists within our PCN or whether that's our local perinatal psychiatry colleagues. Um, I think as a GP, I feel relatively comfortable talking about antidepressants. When it comes to antipsychotics, I always phone a friend <laughs> and that friend being our perinatal psychiatry guys. I don't think GPs in general would feel comfortable altering antipsychotic doses and, that, and I'm not sure that I would recommend that. I think that's an area I definitely would, would ask for advice and support. However, I still wouldn't ask uh, somebody to stop something suddenly in pregnancy. And actually, as, as Sarah said, there's very few things that are absolutely contraindicated. So an urgent referral if somebody was taking antipsychotics, but I would strongly urge them to continue to take them until they'd spoken to, to the perinatal team. There are um, some other situations if somebody for example, is pregnant and I feel that they would really benefit from from antidepressants, they might want to hold off a bit longer until they've got through the first trimester. They may actually be feeling quite poorly and actually want to start something sooner. And that's a really individual decision. And what risks some women will accept, actually others would find too much. And it's often too much to do in one one appointment. So actually giving women the information, following them up, saying, I'm going to give you this to read. Here's some websites and give you a call in a couple of days is a much better approach than actually saying, well, I think you're going to do really well with this. Here's a prescription. Because actually the compliance rate, if you don't get that woman on board with your suggestion and they don't feel that they're making that decision, they may not take it and they may not come back because they've not felt listened to and they've not felt that their wishes have been taken into account. And then you've really missed a, missed a trick with that and lost the opportunity to really help that woman. So I think I, I never rush decisions um, and I would follow those principles that I've mentioned, but I would certainly have a low threshold for speaking to my colleagues um, about the antipsychotics. So Sarah, I don't know if you want to add anything at that point. 
Yeah, I just agree with everything you've said there, Carrie. In in terms of the antipsychotics, again, you've got to be thinking about what the risk is to the mother of potentially coming off them and becoming unwell, what that risk looks like for the baby and the parent-infant relationship, and compare it to the risks associated with medication in pregnancy and in breastfeeding. By and large, we don't think the antipsychotics are major teratogens. Um, There are some associations with some adverse outcomes that might need some additional monitoring. So again, it's important to weigh up, you know, is the medication indicated? Is this the right medication? Has the woman benefited from it? And are they on, like Carrie said, the lowest effective dose for the shortest period of time? That said, um, in terms of the mood stabilizers, there are certain considerations. So antipsychotics, I think, you know, seek advice from perinatal team, but I think they'd be the same for the mood stabilizers, for example, lithium, Lamotrigine, and obviously we know about sodium valproate that it is contraindicated in pregnancy. So um, you know, if a woman presents um, on valproate in pregnancy, it's an urgent referral to the perinatal mental health team who need to see them within 48 hours to review the medication with a view to stopping it and looking at what alternatives are available. And that's because of the risks associated with valproate, particularly around 10% risk of congenital malformations and up to kind of 40 to 50% risk of neurodevelopmental sequelae. So, you know, in general, I think antipsychotics and mood stabilizers probably do need a specialist referral or at least um, close communication or correspondence with a local perinatal mental health team. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's an individual choice. What might be sort of an acceptable risk for one woman in terms of a risk to her becoming unwell will be completely unacceptable to the next woman. And so, like Carrie said, it's a, it's important to take the opportunity to engage them and, and respect the wishes and, 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 and know your kind of limitations in terms of your consultation. You're there to advise, not dictate what people are taking and put the right package of care around them in terms of psychological support, social care support, um, thinking about you know, a tour of the mother and baby unit or potentially having, you know, some specialist support from the perinatal mental health team to ensure that they're well and to ensure that everybody who's involved in that individual's care is aware what medication they're on, what needs to happen at certain time points. So it's it's not just about the medication, it's about absolutely everything else in terms of the care package. But by and large, most medications are relatively safe, especially if they're indicated, the balance of continuing to take them will outweigh the risk. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I was going to add that when the NICE guidance came out a couple of years ago, I was really hoping for some sort of league table, which is the best SSRI to use, make it really simple for me. And I was quite disappointed that it wasn't in there. Um, But a lot of GPs ask me that, which is the best to use? And I think that's a a really important question, um, because actually a woman might have had side effects of sertraline, but actually got on really well with phloxetine. And uh, so it really depends on that woman's choice. I tend to start with sertraline first. I tend to start with a low dose. And if it's well tolerated, then then build up to the dose until that lady feels better. Um, But Sarah, I remember one of your perinatal psychiatry colleagues telling me one year, a few years ago, that there's so much research in this area. There was like 150 papers on antidepressants in pregnancy one year and I don't know how you can kind of keep up with all of that but you've obviously got your finger a bit more on the pulse than I have in terms of the research but is that still generally the thing the thinking that actually they're all pretty good except for paroxetine that's certainly what I understood yeah, I think there's just uncertainty around paroxetine. So in general, sertraline and ephetalopram tend to be first line in primary care because of the efficacy um, and because of the low relative infant doses, particularly with sertraline in breastfeeding. So yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you there that that would be what we would recommend first line in someone who was kind of antidepressant naive. And then people who've been treated before, it depends on what they've responded to previously. There's absolutely no point trying something at this really critical time it's important to use medication that there's been a good response to previously. 
Yeah, and I and I tend to to talk to women about some of the risks that have been uh, put out there, and one of them is the increased risk of persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, but it's still a relatively low risk, and and that can happen uh, if I've got my stats right, one in a thousand uh, babies born, and actually being on an SSRI can increase that to just under two in a thousand, so it's still a, a small increase, but it is important to mention that, and that is usually why um, women on SSRIs are offered a hospital birth or recommended to have a hospital birth. Uh, I get asked a lot about the question about autism, and I think that is a really difficult question to answer. There's lots of information online, and women might have read about it and come uh, to see me and say, is it true that it's going to cause autism? And I don't think there's a clear answer. But what I can say is that there are lots and lots of uh, confounding elements in the data that it's just not clean enough to say there's a causal effect. But we do know that actually uh, women who are in a very complex period of their life, if there's substance abuse, alcohol abuse, they're not engaging with antenatal care. Actually, some of the outcomes there were really quite significant. Um, and it's uh, you have to, as Sarah said, look at the whole picture for, for that woman and her, her experience and her care. So I hope that gives a little bit. Is there anything else you wanted to ask Sarah and Lisa about med- medication or does that, is, does that cover things, do you think? Yeah, I was just going to say thank you for such a balanced look at the medications and for putting out so clearly. Um, I think it was really nice. Um, Sarah, do you have anything else you wanted to ask? No, um, it's it's something that I sort of struggle with. So if you had somebody who had been on sertraline, who'd come back in uh, early-ish pregnancy, who tried and conceived without sertraline, but actually was getting lower. And this is sort of the mild side of things, things that we'd be sort of managing in-house in, in primary care. Talking about risk balance, I'm, I'm thinking about going back on my sertraline. What do you think? Um, I'm not really sure about the risks. Uh, you mentioned there about some of the risks and um, that you would talk to them about. I just wonder about a kind of a fuller picture, how you do it. Yeah, and, and I think it's about thinking about what was some associations with some adverse obstetric outcomes and infant and neonatal outcomes of untreated or partially treated depression in the mother. So that's got to be balanced against the risk that Carrie's talked about, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. And what we see or what's seen much more commonly than that is the poor neonatal adaptation syndrome, or and they're not quite 100% sure whether that's kind of a neonatal toxicity or a neonatal withdrawal, but that's seen in approximately kind of 30 to 40 percent of, of infants that have been exposed to psychotropic medication um, self-limiting just requires supportive measures but nonetheless you know those are some of the risks that need to be discussed with a woman to give her the informed choice yeah, I think um, w- women, we have to treat them as individuals, what, what risks some women will take, others won't. But actually, you know, some women, they don't want to go to yoga. They don't want to take up the suggestions of mindfulness. They just want to feel better quicker. And if you're in an area that has um, a, a talking therapies weight that's significant, that woman might choose to start medication sooner than somebody that, that thinks, actually, I do want to give that a go. I'd quite like to try without medicines and see, if, see what I can do with that, this and the other. Um, but in terms of the the talking therapies, there's such geographical variability with that. It's really important to know your local area and what that uh, wait time is. Actually, the nice guidance is that women should be referred uh, as a priority if they are in the perinatal time. And I think, Sarah, please correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's four weeks to be seen, six weeks to start treatment. I think, is that the the target? It's something much shorter than most areas have for their their talking therapies uh, waiting list. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, part of the longer term plan for perinatal mental health service development has recognised the need for increased access to evidence-based psychological therapies and how important that will be as a combined offer with medication. So yeah, we're hoping that over the course of the next five years, we see a huge expansion in access to a number of different and, and varied psychological therapies um, for not just mothers, but also co-parents and family therapy as well. So hopefully Hopefully, things were going to start getting better in terms of the access there. Yeah, and that's another really practical a practical point, I guess, for, for the audience, just to make sure that if they, if they do signpost a, a woman that they're seeing to the local talking therapies team, they encourage them to actually say that they're pregnant or in the first year, because then hopefully they will be made a priority case. And actually, some women I've actually proactively um, emailed the, the service to actually say, I've suggested this lady makes contact as she does. This is the background, obviously, with the patient's consent, um, just because actually it, it is so important to give uh, as much support as that lady needs at that time wonderful yeah 
Um, so in terms of the the other learning points from the Spotlight programme, what kind of things have you learned in terms of how the COVID pandemic has been affecting perinatal care? Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting question. And actually, um, I've only taught two cohorts within the Spotlight during the pandemic. And before that, video consultation was, you know, something really that most GPs did never anticipate that they would be doing. But in terms of how that that's uh, changed the way that GPs interact with women, actually, a lot more is done on the telephone, a lot more is done on video. And we have to be really, really mindful that a lot of those non-verbal cues might be missed. Um, and therefore, we need to really really be even more proactive about asking those questions that we talked about earlier. Um, also, it's worth mentioning that sadly, the increase in uh, domestic violence incidents, and actually, you may be talking to a woman, perhaps for a postnatal check, there are other people in the room, she doesn't feel able to disclose what she would otherwise. And I think that that's a really important thing for, for professionals to remember if they are working remotely. Um, certainly in our practice, we have um, managed to get face-to-face -face mother and baby checks up and running for quite some time now, which is, is, is great. But a woman's whole experience of pregnancy has changed during the pandemic. She may have had less appointments. She certainly will have seen the, the GP less, I, I think. In, in, I think that's that's pretty pretty universal. Um, and she may have not been able to take her partner along to appointments, going to scans on her own. And that's even before the birth. So it's quite a different experience women have had pre-birth. Actually, during the birth, you know, massive change in terms of PPE, uh, all the infection control procedures, even the idea of going to a hospital has been much more unnerving for people in COVID. And I think that that's really unfortunately coloured uh, women's experience of, of inevitably of birth. Um, and I'm not sure that the data is there yet in terms of increased numbers of birth trauma. And it would be it would be interesting to see if that translates into the data in, in a year or two. But postnatally as well, particularly if you go back to last year in the really harshest of lockdowns, that social network that is so crucial to so many women who, who have a baby, the grandparents might not have been able to come around and support. Their mother and baby units might not have been running. Um, the health visitor might have done a remote phone call. You know, all these things that, that have made it much, much more difficult for women to feel connected and to feel they can uh, be supported and disclose how they're feeling has meant it's been been a real challenge for women going through having a baby during COVID. And uh, and I think we, we, we all need to be mindful of that as when we see them as professionals. It's certainly made it much more complicated. Yeah, thanks for covering that. Um, and we're kind of coming up towards the um, end of the episode now. And one of the things we usually ask about is resources. Um, now, you've both, you have mentioned loads of great stuff as we've gone along, but is there anything that you both want to highlight particularly um, as a good resource for either clinicians or patients? Uh, so I always recommend the Lancet series on perinatal mental health, which is three chapters, quite short chapters. The first is on um, non-psychotic disorders. The second is on the psychotic disorders and the third is on the parent-infant relationship. And I think it just really concisely summarises the issues that we've talked about today. We've also got the NICE guidance for antenatal and postnatal mental health care, um, which summarises, again, some of the kind of guidelines around some of the talking points we've had today. Um, in terms of patient resources, um, the Action on Postpartum Psychosis is an amazing charity and the um, website has got loads of resources um, for patients, professionals and carers and families um, and so has the Maternal Mental Health Alliance which is um, an umbrella organisation for a number of charities and well the RCGP, the RCSIG, RCPCH and um, Tommy's Trust, that's loads of people that have come together to, um, to join the Maternal Mental Health Alliance. They've got lots of resources as well for professionals and patients. And then maternal OCD, I always direct um, patients who, who have experiences with OCD or families who are trying to manage OCD, some really valuable resources on there. So there's kind of some of the go-to ones that I would recommend. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was putting together the RCGP Perinatal Mental Health Toolkit, absolutely those were resources that we wanted to include. Um, so yeah, APP and Maternal OCD are definitely in there. We've actually got a section in the toolkit for resources for professionals. We've got a section for uh, resources to help patients and their families. We've also got one uh, specifically for healthcare professionals affected themselves because that's another whole talk in itself, really, how we yeah. best support colleagues that might be having uh, difficulties that we've been talking about with the extra challenges that working in healthcare 
brings. Um, I, th- I mentioned the Bumps website, but I really encourage your listeners to have a look at the toolkit. And also, if they think anything that should be there that's not, by all means, come and find me on Twitter or, or, or share it with me. Um, because, yeah, definitely it's a, it's an expanding group of resources um, and we're always looking for new and useful things. I have been involved in an e-learning for health series. E-learning is a bit like Marmite. Some people love it, some people don't. Um, but there are five uh, modules there. Um, I've written one. There's one by um, a specialist midwife, one by a specialist health visitor, one by a perinatal psychiatrist. So there's lots of really good learning there. And that, they're, they're quite relatively short, but doing the series of five will give your listeners a really um, a broader understanding, actually, of some of the issues we talked about. So I'd recommend that. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for those. Um, so then our final question um, is to ask you what you want the listeners to take away from today. What's your kind of hard hitting points that you want them to remember from the discussion? Preconception and early identification uh, have got to be up there, individual choice, risk and benefit analysis, and don't forget the perinatal red flags. Yeah, and I think mine have got to be those two, those two winning questions. Tell me about the birth and how are you finding being a mum? Amazing summary in 10, ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you both so much. That was amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks very much for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing it going out. (laughs) So it was so lovely to meet um, Sarah and Kari virtually and um, have that chat tonight with them. And what were your takeaway points, Sarah? What did you learn? Yeah, I think they were amazing. I um, I was saying to them afterwards, I was like, oh, I want to do an episode on, you know, every single diagnosis really individually to get... Um, to get all of their <laughs> as much information as we can they're just incredibly knowledgeable and it's really important and I really liked well loads of stuff but the open questions to the mum um in the six six week check um tell me about the birth and how are you finding being a mum are such um really useful golden questions yeah no that, I agree They're, they sound really useful and I think you will get some really good information out of women from those yeah. um for me, I think I was struck about the talk around paternal mental health because um, mm-hmm. when you hear the phrase perinatal mental health, you always think of mum and you always think about what might happen to her and I don't think it ever really comes into the equation about the co-parent or the dad. Um, and so I think it was really interesting to think about them and to think about the kind of unit of parenting yeah. um, and how that can have an impact on the child and just the chat around the um kind of the early intervention and how it's not just thinking about mum's mental health it's not just thinking about the care of the baby at the time it's thinking about that development and the lasting impact that that can have on the child's life into their later life into their adult years um and so if you can kind of make that difference really early on and um and get a handle and a support for this family then just think about the difference you can maybe make to that child's entire life course yeah and like she said generations as well yeah yeah what a powerful message yeah and um i think the point as well about the prevalence um just you know that we're always doing blood pressures and urine dipstick tests at every appointment um but we're not always asking about mental health in every appointment um and it is hard you you know you're up against time pressures (laughs) yeah and you don't want to open a can of worms but you do you do because this is why (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly and it's just booking it in you know for follow-ups and things yeah yeah, completely. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I can feel that feeling of I don't want to broach that because what if I end up down a rabbit hole of things? But you're right. If you address it at that point, you're probably saving a lot of heartache for a lot of different people um, further down the line, probably including yourself. Um, and if you take that kind of bookmark it, follow up, um, try and manage the time, but I still ask the questions. It's probably the best way to approach it. Yeah. And also uh, about the support that you can actually get referrals into psychiatry to do preconception counselling um that they can talk them through pros and cons of medications and birth plans and things like that so that's yeah, pretty very impressive interesting. Yeah. yeah i didn't know that existed no yeah uh, no um, i did i did for people who've had bad experiences before but not for people who are who haven't but it makes sense if you've got a diagnosis and you're at high risk of having perinatal mental health issues. It does make sense, yeah. Yeah. Overall, just a really fascinating chat, I think. And um, really big thank you goes out to Sarah and Carrie and all the people behind the scenes who helped to make this one happen. Yeah. 
So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do. And please um, use the episode description to have a look at all the links that we do put in um, for each episode, uh, as well as our information about surveys and how to get hold of us if you want. Yeah. Um, and thank you to everybody who um, who listens, who leaves comments, who gives us feedback. Um, we love to see um, what you think about the episodes. And um, we are in a bit of planning stage for the next kind of 12 to 18 months. So if you want to get your ideas in, now's the time to definitely get in touch with us and let us know what you're thinking might be useful. Yeah. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.